I'm incredibly grateful to be here with you this morning. I love listening to Hallelujah, Salvation and Glory. It was one of my favorites. And so I had to make sure I was on mute for that so I could sing at the top of my lungs. Shout out to the altos who never get enough credit in choirs. Thank you to Watson and Nikki and Andrea for your leadership uh, this morning and continually and uh, for this series, uh, Church Now and Church Next, that I am excited to speak into this morning. A couple of weeks ago, I was reading an article in The Atlantic, and it was entitled, We Could Have Changed the World. And I very much agreed with the lamenting sentiment of the author. I mean, I very much thought that in the past year and a half, with the revelations of injustice across racial and gender and class lines, that we were going to collectively hashtag build back better. God even attached a scripture to this hope that I had, uh, Hebrews 12, 26 through 27, where it said, he has promised, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but the heaven as well. The words once more signify the removal of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that the unshakable may remain. And so as I read that, I imagine that this this uh, upheaval was a, a shaking that would be a shifting and that the things of injustice would fall away, leaving the things of kingdom to be fully revealed. That is not necessarily what I see at this point. Just yesterday, I quit my gym again, two months after I rejoined it with the threat of the Delta variant rising and having an unvaccinated kiddo at home. I still remember the pain of having the day when Derek Chauvin was convicted be the same day when a young black girl, Makia Bryant, was killed by police only a couple of hours from my house. And I understand the diminishment of hope that comes from protections like eviction moratoriums and additional unemployment insurance coming to an end, plunging people back into higher levels of uncertainty. I can say, along with the author of that article, Akemni Wan, the world has not been remade, and there are no signs that it will be. But I believe in times like this, we are being called by God to do the opposite of what it is we are tempted to do, that we are being called to hold on to hope and belief, and that we cannot let the ups and downs of this moment distract us from the trajectory of the kingdom and our part in it that our continuing to believe perhaps is an important part in bringing about the momentum towards the day that we would like to see. And as hard as that can be today to do, I want to suggest four shifts that I think can help us hold on to that hope despite what we see. The first shift that I wanna suggest is seeing with the right view. And I think there's no better scripture that encapsulates that than Matthew 6, verses 22 through 23. It took me a long time to understand the scripture, but it finally came clear to me when I read it in the message version. So that's the version I want to read for you. Matthew 6, verses 22 through 23, where it reads, Your eyes are windows into your body. If you open up your eyes wide in wonder and belief, your body fills up with light. But if you live squinty-eyed in greed and distrust, your body is a dank cellar. If you pull the blinds on your windows, what a dark life you will have. 
This uh, idea of opening your eyes wide in wonder and belief is the same idea as the ayin tova or the good eye. And it encourages us to look at circumstances and people from the perspective of love. It asks us to look at people charitably, even that dude bro who hasn't figured out that the mask goes over your nose and your mouth at the same time. When we fail to look at people with the good eye, we perpetuate an us versus them mentality that encourages us to fight against groups of people instead of principalities and power. And this view, this good eye comes from our internal disposition rather than outward circumstances. So even when our situation doesn't change, taking this good eye, this view of love, says more about ourselves than it does about other people. Especially when it comes to others, uh, Pope Francis did a great job of telling us why this good eye is so important in his Fratelli Tutti. He wrote, in today's world, the sense of belonging to a single human family is fading and the dream of working together for justice and peace seems an outdated utopia. What reigns instead is a cool, comfortable, and globalized indifference, born of deep disillusionment concealed behind a deceptive illusion, thinking that we are all powerful while failing to realize that we are all in the same boat. This illusion, unmindful of the great fraternal values, leads to a sort of cynicism. For that is the temptation we face if we go down the road of disenchantment and disappointment. Isolation and withdrawal into one's interests are never the way to restore hope and bring about renewal. You see, Pope Francis tells us that when we live into disenchantment and disappointment, we miss the opportunities to bring about renewal. It's not so much that this belief can do it by itself. It's not about sitting at home and having hopeful thinking. I'll have more points on that later. Um, but the idea is if we don't start with that hopeful good eye, we're going to be drawn into greed and distrust that protects our own interests and doesn't look after the interests of others. Only by opening our eyes wide in wonder and belief and believing the best and believing a different future is possible, can we even possibly take the next step towards seeing the sort of world that we want to see? Together is the only way forward. And that's not possible when we view each other with eyes full of greed and distrust. To have any hope of remaking the world, we have to look at people and circumstances and genuinely believe better is possible. Again, that doesn't make it happen uh, by itself, but it's not a foolish thing to do. It starts the process towards rebuilding. We must, first of all, see with the right view. The second shift I want to recommend is holding the right eschatology. And eschatology is just a word for view of the final things or, or the things at the end. And so to look at eschatology, I want to take you to a bit of a facepalm moment for Jesus. And it occurs in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. This moment happens after Jesus has already died and resurrected and is giving some instructions to his disciples. And it reads, so when they were assembled, he asked them, Lord, is this the time when you will reestablish the kingdom and restore it to Israel? So why the face palm over what seems to be an innocuous question? 
Well, one of the things that Jesus did in his teaching was correct a fundamental error in Jewish eschatology. They believed that Messiah would come, fight an epic battle, restore earthly rulership to Jewish people. And so when they were asking this question about, is this the time to restore the kingdom? They were expecting some saber rattling and a a fight against Rome to come. But Jesus had been showing them all along that this wasn't the way of the kingdom. Instead, he taught stuff like the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that all the birds can come and perch in its branches. And also the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked through all the dough. Jesus was not short on ability to defeat the Romans militarily, but he knew that that sort of victory could never bring about the kingdom of God. The kingdom doesn't come from above being enforced in others. It works from the inside out. The kingdom comes bit by bit, person to person. It starts small and ends large as a mustard seed or or yeast expands organically. This was God's great takeover plan. And this is why the disciples' question would have been such a frustration. The end that they desired was never coming by the means that they imagined. Well, it's often funny to laugh at the the disciples and how often they didn't get it. But I would say a lot of times, neither do we. I think the reason why a, a correct eschatology is so important is because so often we look at situations and circumstances. We, we look at the intractable issues of race or we look at poverty and we say, well, that'll really be solved when Jesus comes back. And until then, we just do the best we can. But what if we really believe this? What if we really believe that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed and it's expanding and it's growing and it's going to be so expansive that all the birds, that every nation can come and perch in its branches and that there's not another step required for that to happen, but that can begin to happen now. That because we are carriers of the kingdom of God, that every place that we step our foot can begin to be a place that looks like Jesus is in charge. That if we have a view of of waiting to the end of things for things to be fixed, and we stop believing that we can see a different world in here and now. Along with the right view, the right eschatology gives us the urgency of knowing that we can begin to step into seeing a world that is more just and more righteous, and we don't have to wait for that. Um, Like the disciples, we do not have to wait for a, a great military battle to begin, but small steps bit by bit are the things that will turn the kingdom into something that has worked into all the dough. So a right eschatology. Now, as we have that eschatology, we also need to make sure that our, our work that we're doing towards expanding this kingdom is focused on the right things. And for that, I would say we also need to build the right ecclesia. When we look at this word ecclesia that is commonly uh, translated church, uh, we want to, again, look at what was Jesus really asking us to be part of? What is Jesus really building in and through us? 
And for that, let's look back to Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. That's Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Now, the setting for this uh, teaching is Jesus has taken his uh, poor, impressionable disciples to a place where a good Jewish boy should never go. And in this place, they had um, festivals and debauchery so ripe, it, it made Las Vegas honestly look like a Sunday school room by comparison. And so they were already a little bit nervous there. But then facing a rock face that was about 100 feet tall and 300 feet wide, um, where all of these going-ons were happening that would have uh, terrified a, a good Jewish boy, Jesus says, and on this rock, I will build my ecclesia, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, as a bit of an aside, you know, given the propensity of Jewish rabbis to use what was in front of them to teach, uh, when Jesus said rock, and lots of people have uh, debated on what this rock means, uh, I would posit that maybe it just means rock because he was facing a large rock face. But I will leave that for your Sunday afternoon theological discussions. What I want to focus on is this word ecclesia. And as I mentioned, it's commonly translated church, that Jesus is building his church. But that's not how the disciples would have understood it. I mean, they had a word for temple, they had a word for synagogue, and Jesus didn't use either of those words. Instead, he used ecclesia. Ecclesia meant a governing assembly. It meant a group of leaders who would go out even ahead of the, the, the ruler coming to town and saying, you have new leadership here. This is what the laws look like. This is what this place looks like. This is what the authority of this leader looks like and begin to reshape society according to those dictates. That's what Jesus said he was going to build. And that would have been a profoundly political message for the disciples. And so I offer this as a, an understanding of the things that we are stepping into when we are uh, expanding the kingdom like mustard seeds or like yeast. The kingdom is not limited to uh, things of salvation. Jesus didn't come to, to build a new religion. Jesus came to build a kingdom and to establish that the kingdom was already here. And so when we look at what we are governing as this assembly, is it a, a church as a building? No, we, we pretty much rejected that during the pandemic. We figured out the church is not the building. Is it church people who go out and, and you know, spread a gospel of salvation? Well, it's that and. The Ecclesia is a governing assembly that is reshaping and remaking the world every place they step their foot to look like someplace where Jesus is in charge. And because we serve a God whose spirit inspires radical hospitality and generosity, we can expect that an Ecclesia will, will step into educational ventures because we believe that there's the authority there. We'll step into healthcare because we believe that there's the authority of God there. We'll step into government because we believe that there's the authority of God there and do it in such a way where we can start to say, because the church is here, because the Ecclesia is here, 
these places and these areas look more like they would where Jesus was in charge. What would that do to the world that we have around us if we believe that that was the church that Jesus was building in and through us, and that we went out every day and lived accordingly, that we lived accordingly to this ecclesia as a governing assembly, not just a religious body, even though that's important, that this gospel was not just about salvation, even though that's the most amazing thing that could have ever happened to us. It's small compared to the sort of kingdom that God is building. For us to be part of this remaking of the world, we need to have an expansive view of what the ecclesia is and never say the church doesn't have authority there. The church has authority every place where people who are called by the name of Jesus set their foot. Um, and so embracing that and believing that in our actions and our going about will begin to change things. The final shift that I want to recommend is a shift to live towards righteousness. Now, what does righteousness really mean? I had always heard it before as kind of a counterpart to justice, that justice dealt with the collective things like racism and sexism and et cetera. And that righteousness was the other part that dealt with the sin issues, that some churches were strong in justice and some were strong in righteousness, that righteousness was about don't lie, cheat, steal, sleep with people you aren't married to, that sort of thing. But that is a, a shrinking of what righteousness was always meant to be. Righteousness was never some abstract notion or, or some sitting around thinking holy thoughts, but it consists of doing what is just and what is right in all relationships. Now, whereas justice is restorative or retributive, which means justice takes things that have been made wrong and either restores something to the party that was harmed or punishes the party who did the harming, righteousness can operate even when no offense has occurred. A righteousness is in operation all of the time. So justice guards over righteousness, but righteousness continues constantly. One great example of what it means to be righteous can be found in Deuteronomy 24, 12. And it says, if the neighbor is poor, do not go to sleep with their pledge in your possession. Return their cloak by sunset so that your neighbor may sleep in it. Then they will thank you, and it will be regarded as a righteous act in the sight of the Lord your God. So this is speaking of someone who has loaned their neighbor money, um, but their neighbor is poor. And so in pledge for this loan, as a collateral for this loan, they've taken their cloak. And the scripture says, if you want to be righteous, you'll give that cloak back before sunset um, so that they have it to sleep in so that they won't be cold at night. Now, what I want you to notice about this is the person who has taken the cloak and pledge has done nothing wrong. They are perfectly within their rights to have taken this cloak and to, to said, okay, this is what I'm going to set aside as collateral. But the word then tells them, if you want to have right action, if you want to be right in your relationship towards this person who needs this cloak a lot more than you do, given the fact that you're loaning out the money, you'll give it back before sunset so that they have something to sleep in. 
righteousness helps us understand that, you know, when we rely exclusively on justice, I think we have a lot of wasted energy in convincing people that they've done something wrong before they have a responsibility to make it right. With righteousness, our responsibility to make things right comes for, from our relationship with God, regardless of our complicity. And it expands to, again, every place in society where we uh, engage. So the person who forgets about racial inequality the second it's no longer in the news and has books about race gathering dust on their shelf, well, they're not exactly wrong, but they're not seeking to make it right. The people and organizations who don't want to deal with how they've gained from racial or gender oppression and want to leave the past in the past, they're not wrong, but they're not seeking to make it right. The person who moves their kids to the good private school instead of working on supporting the families around them to create public schools where every child succeeds, they're not wrong, but they're not seeking to make it right. The person who looks the other way when they see coworkers who are women or people of color being passed over for promotions or treated badly, they're not wrong, but they're not seeking to make it right. And the person who participates in consumption uncritically while ignoring the people and environmental effects further down the supply chain, they may not be wrong, but they're not seeking to make it right. Righteousness requires an expansive view of what is our business and a self-sacrificial view at that. When we move to make righteousness front and center, then we move from having notions of what is right in our heads and having the will to actually change things. And as a sociologist, I feel like I have to note that individual will is relatively limited. There is not so much that you can do uh, by yourself to change global warming. But that's why God didn't give us just individuals. God gave us a collective, a body, a family, and our coming together, discerning the heart of God when it comes to righteousness and acting begins to create sufficient scale to make a difference as long as we're together and not turned against each other. So I believe if we want to see this world that is so stubbornly not remade, finally remade, we need to do four things. We need to see with the right view so we don't turn to us versus them mentality. We need to hold to the right eschatology and believe that Jesus has given us Holy Spirit and strategies and the things that we need to, to expand God's kingdom like a mustard seed or like yeast. We need to build the right ecclesia that's not just a religious body, but as a governing assembly and authority over all of the elements of life, making life look more like Jesus is in charge for everybody. And then living towards righteousness, not waiting for complicity to say, I and we as a collective will step forward in making things right. Maybe we haven't changed the world yet uh, in the face of all that has happened. But if we embrace these four items, I believe we still can. Let's pray. God, who is love, uh, we are just <laughs> grateful to you, God, for the things that you continue to show us that are of your kingdom, that you have put Holy Spirit in our midst and 
in us and with us, to be able to have empowerment, to be able to step into the things that we see that are so desperately wrong, Lord God, and with your empowerment to begin to make them right. God, I pray right now that you would help us to hold on to hope and to just believe because belief is the beginning of action. And God, that for each and every one of us, God, we're here for a reason. Show us the places that you've called us into. Show us the strategies that you have. God, allow us to be a family and a body that moves in concert to create a world like the one that you desire to see. And God, we pray on your returning, Lord God, that you would see this expansion of the kingdom, that your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, we love you. Continue to strengthen us. Give us your peace and your joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.